We turn to Matthew's Gospel once again to the 16th chapter, beginning at verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Let's bow in prayer before reading. Almighty God and our Father, we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit will attend the word read and proclaimed. We carry this treasure in earthen vessels. He who brings your word this morning is but an earthen vessel, but the treasure, the treasure is everything. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will exalt Christ the King in the proclamation of the word that your people will be built up in the most holy faith, and that lost folk among us may come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the head and king of the church, the one of whom we now preach. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. This is the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You will remember that Peter was the first disciple who was called to discipleship, and now Peter is the first disciple to confess the sonship of Jesus Christ and his lordship. In this text, it is clear that there is an inseparable relationship between confessing Christ and one's understanding and relationship to the church. This sermon will not mean much to those who have little love for the church. Those spending their lives promoting the interests of the church will relish what is said in this sermon. Your attitude about the church can say a great deal about your relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing that we see as we turn to this text is confessing Christ, confessing Christ. The question that Jesus asks in verse 13 is this. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, the disciples say there are many opinions. Opinions vary about this question. Some say John the Baptist. That was Herod Antipas' view, that he was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others say that he was Elijah, the forerunner, and that is actually fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Others say that it's Jeremiah, Because Jesus brings doom upon Israel in much that he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jeremiah was a prophet of doom, and some thought that he was Jeremiah come again, and perhaps one of the other prophets. 
Jesus said, no, 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 listen, verse 15. Who do you say that I am? And the you in the Greek text is in the emphatic position, and it's plural, you. Who do you say that I am? That's the question that comes to Peter and to the twelve. That's the question that comes to us this morning. Peter then confesses in verse 16 with this marvel. He replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Now, Peter does not fully understand what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. He will deepen in his understanding of this as we read along in Matthew's Gospel week after week. But since the resurrection and completion of the canon, the books of the Bible, we have the clearest declaration of what this means. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity who came into this world and who took upon himself human nature, who obeyed the law that we broke, who went to a cross and shed his precious blood to save us from our sins. He is the one who rose from the dead, who intercedes for his people and is coming again and will judge both the quick and the dead. He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. He is God himself who was incarnate for our great salvation. Now let me give you two thoughts about this confession as it relates to ourselves before moving on. The first is this. If you are here and you have not yet confessed Christ, we call upon you to confess Christ. And if you say to yourself, well, I just don't know everything there is to know about Christ, you never will. Confess Christ on the basis of the confession that you see here. He is the Son of God. Confess. If you know that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners, and you can say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I trust Him as my Savior, trust Him and trust Him now. Don't wait until you know so much more before you confess Christ. God brings His people to an understanding of Himself incrementally and continues after conversion to grow us in our understanding of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. And so confess Christ and confess Him now. Will you confess Christ this morning if you never have? And then I also want to say that if we ask this question, who is Jesus, who is this one who is called Christ, out there on the street, the answer that you would get is, he's a great man, he was a good teacher, he is the founder of a world religion. Some people might say he's the son of God, but not have any understanding of what that means. Well, why is that inadequate? Why is it inadequate to say, as the prevalent view would answer, he's the founder of a world religion? I've mentioned to you before J.G. Voss, the son of Gerhardus Voss, who was a missionary to China. And as he went from village to village, he had a kind of a kind of flannel board, we would today call it, a panel, various panels that he would unopen as he would present the gospel. In the first panel, we see a man who is in a deep pit with steep sides, and he's making efforts to climb up out, and he can't do it. In the second, we find that as he's down in the pit, a Confucianist comes along. The Confucianist looks down to this man in the pit, and he says to him, uh, why don't you just watch where you're walking? A careful man doesn't fall into pits. And then he walks away and he leaves the man in the pit. The panels begin to unfold, and in the next panel, a Taoist priest advises the man to burn incense. Well, that helped a lot. So he walks on, and the man is still in the pit. In the next panel, a Buddhist monk says, Poor man, the trouble with you is that you want things you cannot have. Just rid yourself of the desire to get out of the pit. 
And that doesn't help the man either. In the final panel, there's a Christian who gets on his knees and reaches down into the pit and helps the man out. And in the final, absolute final picture, we see the man who is established upon a rock and he's singing praises to God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the answer as to why the typical view of the matter out there that Jesus is simply the founder of a religion will not do. Jesus did not come to found a religion. He came to save sinners from their sins. And the only message that will save us is the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come into this world to die for our sins upon a cross. It will not do to say he was a great man or a good teacher only. You need a Savior, God himself, become incarnate to come into this world and to redeem you from your sins. And so the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Now this is what Peter is beginning to understand when he confesses you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're absolutely unique. You're the Savior. No one else could do for us what needs to be done to redeem us from our sins. Well, what is the source of this confession? Why is it that Peter at this point can confess this and and at other times he did not? Or why is it that we do not simply naturally confess this? What is the source of this confession? The answer is found in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are blessed, Peter, because my Father has revealed the Son of God to you, who I am to you. Flesh and blood cannot do this. And the same is true for us. Do you remember what John says in John 1? Turn there for a moment. John 1, verses 11 and following. In John 1, he says of Jesus, in verse 11, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, now this is the new birth of which he speaks, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, what Jesus is saying in this passage back in Matthew 18 is that Peter has been born from above. Free grace in its particularity and omnipotence is not preached by the mass of ministers, but it was preached by Jesus. Do you remember how he said in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, in verses 25 and following, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And that is what has happened here in this passage. The Father has revealed the Son to Peter. And that's our need as well. We need a spiritual faculty that is given by the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, Jesus says in John's Gospel. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do you not know you must be born again? You need a new will. You need new tastes, a new apprehension and understanding. Everything needs to be made new. And the Holy Spirit in the heart enables the sinner to embrace Christ and to confess Him as the Son of God. 
The world's opinion no longer counts when that happens. The man who is now born again, his aim is now to know Christ and to give his all for him. And so I ask you this question, can you confess? I don't mean simply say with the lips, but can you confess from the heart, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you not know that you must be born again? That this must be revealed to the heart? It must be revealed to the soul? That it's something you can't do by nature, but you can only do through the enablement of the Father, who through the Holy Spirit draws God's people to himself. Now, that's the confession. Marvelous, isn't it, when you think about it? That Peter, dead in trespasses and sins, has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and he is able to confess of Jesus Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now, as we move along in the text, we confess Christ in relationship to the church. And our relationship to the church does not regenerate us, but regeneration establishes our heart attitude toward the church, and the church becomes the context in which and from which we confess Christ. So the second thing we see in this text is constructing the church, constructing the church. The context of our confession is the church, and Jesus constructs, builds his church, constructing the church. And about the construction of the church, the Lord Jesus says several things. First, he points to the foundation of the church. You see it in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Roman Catholicism, of course, through the centuries has taken this text and has pled for Peter as the first pope on the basis of this passage. There's nothing here, however, about Peter as Pope, nothing here about Peter's successors, nothing about the infallibility of the Pope when he speaks ex cathedra, nothing like that whatsoever. That's a construct that is laid on top of the text. Many Protestants then who are reading this text in the Greek New Testament have said, well, we have, we have Petros, which is masculine for Peter, and then we have Petra, which is feminine, Petros meaning a stone, Petra meaning mountain or peak or a great rock. And so what is being said here is you're just a little stone, but I'm going to build a church on this greater stone of your confession. Now, I think that's closer to what the text is teaching. Certainly there's truth in it. But I think the correct view is simply this, that Peter represents the 12, and the 12 are foundational for the church in the truth that they teach. We are told in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In Acts 2.42, we read of the early Christians. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so when we say there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the apostolicity of the church means that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It does not mean a succession of ordinations going back to Peter. It means the truth that was proclaimed out of the apostles' mouths that now has been brought to completion in this book that we call the Bible. The foundation is God's revelation given through the apostles. The Lord builds his church and he builds his church on truth. 
So we read in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Why are we so concerned about truth, about correct doctrine, about having things right when we study the Scripture and understanding the best we can and, and, and teaching the catechism to our children? Well, this is the reason, because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's what apostolicity means. And so the mission of the church is to maintain and preach the, church, the truth of God's Word and to make disciples. There are many things that are good for Christians to do that are not the call of the church. The mission of the church is to preach and teach this word and to disciple sinners in the faith. You know, I read a recent list, I'm not sure who put it out, of influences, the top ten influences on culture, and the church is not even mentioned. That really didn't surprise me. But when you stop and think about it, the church, especially now, is tripping over itself to influence culture. Let's do anything and everything we can to get them in. Let's do anything and everything that we possibly can to influence people around us, even if that means softening our doctrine and not preaching it straight or whatever it may mean. Anything we can to have influence on the culture around us. But you see, the whole thinking is wrong. Because the church is not... The mission of the church is not to transform our culture. That's byproduct. That's in God's hands. The mission of the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth and to preach the truth. And that's our calling. So he speaks, first of all, of the foundation of the church. But as he speaks of constructing the church, the Lord Jesus also speaks of the certainty of the church in verse 18. Look again. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's a future tense. I will do it. Until the end of the age, Christ is building his church. This is the promise of Christ. We do not build the church, I hope you understand. We cannot save a soul. We cannot regenerate a heart. We cannot convert a sinner. We are called to proclaim and to live godly lives. Christ builds his church. Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives unto me shall come unto me. We are told in Acts 13, 48, that as the apostles preached the gospel, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It is God who is building his church. He has a people, and he will bring them to Christ and bring them to his church. We are to be faithful in what he has called us to do, but let us never think that we are building the church. Should God increase this congregation by leaps and bounds, all the glory goes to him. He builds his church. So he speaks of the certainty of the church. Until Christ comes again, he will have a people, sometimes a small little remnant in a place, sometimes a great and large number, but he is building his church according to his own plan. But as we think of constructing the church, the third thing Jesus says about this church is that he's the owner. You see again how he puts it in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, my church. Do you remember how Paul in Acts 20, verse 28, speaks of the church that is purchased with Christ's own blood? 
He calls, he saves, he builds, he has the right to establish the church's worship, the church's sacraments, the church's order, and the church's mission. Christ is head and king of his church. He owns the church. What does that mean for us in the church? It means that we have no right to establish our own mission. It means that we have no right to add sacraments. It means that we have no right to deviate from what he, the head and king of the church, tells us in his word. Let me give you an example of that, one of many that I could give. Take, for example, the ordination of women to the teaching office of the church. Most of the denominations have have given over to that. They believe that that should be done. After all, women are smart, they're clever, they're capable, and we live in a day of women's lib, and so why not do it? The culture says we ought to do it, and it's going to hurt us if we don't. Let's ordain women to office. The scriptures are so very plain about this matter, people of God. The scriptures say that God has a purpose in ordaining order in his church just as he does in the home. And just as a wife is not the head of the home, so in the church, the head and king of the church has established an order and he has said that he has called and ordained men only to the office of pastor-teacher. Now that's very clear. You can see it in many passages of scripture. The point is this. Our culture does not have the right to determine for the church that matter or any other matter. Christ says, I am the owner of the church. Christ, therefore, is the one who establishes the order of the church. The church never has a right to say, Christ said do it this way, but we're going to do it that way. When Christ says, this is the way it's to be done, this is the way it's to be done. Will you pray that you will love the owner of the church? Will you pray that he will keep us and keep you in the way, faithful to his word? Will you pray that God would keep us from going cold in this matter of the warmth that we should have and love that we should have for this great one who saved us from our sins and who owns the church? But as Jesus speaks of constructing the church in this passage, he also speaks of the continuity of the church. Well, pastor, where do you see that? Well, look again. In verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You see it here in the word church. The word ecclesia, church, is used in the Gospels in only two places. Once here, and again in chapter 18, verse 17. Why is this significant for us? It is significant because this word ecclesia, or church, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament word for the people of God, kahal, or assembly. So you will remember in Acts chapter 7, it speaks of the church in the wilderness, or assembly in the wilderness, that's the word ecclesia. What is the text teaching us? The text is teaching us that the church now has a new form, but nonetheless, it is the same church throughout all of the ages. There has been one people of God throughout all of the ages. There is only one way of salvation throughout all of the ages. And so if you understand the continuity of the people of God and the continuity of the church, this will keep you from falling into the errors of dispensationalism. It will give to you a sense of the greatness of the church of which you are a part. You are not the first believers to have walked on the face of the earth. 
It will give you a sense of the one way of salvation throughout all the ages that Abraham was justified by grace through faith as he looked for Christ to come, just as you are justified by grace through faith as you look to the Christ who has come. One way of salvation. One people of God throughout all the ages. And it will also give you a sense and recognition that God is not done yet. That this same God who has been drawing his people through the centuries is drawing them now and will draw them until Christ comes again. And so pray for new converts in this place. I want to know this. Listen to me. Are you broken hearted about this matter? Do you care about lost sinners? Do you love lost sinners? Do you care about their eternal salvation? Do you care if we are a congregation used in the winning of the lost to Jesus? I want to tell you your pastor's heart breaks over it. Every week I pray, Lord, do not give us a service of worship in which a lost person does not come to faith in Christ. As I'm preaching to the people of God, the gospel is always there, save some lost sinner. Do you care about that? Do you pray about that? Do you ask that God would use us that way? That they would be brought into this continuous stream of the people of God and that one day we all will stand together before the Lamb upon His throne and worship His name a multitude which no man can number, and that numbers of those have come to faith in Christ because he has chosen to use us in the ministry of his word. Do you care about that? Let me ask you, have you ever gone up to a a newcomer here on a Sunday morning after the word has been preached, and have you ever said to that newcomer, hi, my name is, and let me ask you a question. Do you know the Christ who was preached in the pulpit this morning in this church? Have you ever done that? I find that in churches that the Lord has used greatly in those matters, that's the way people act. That's how they think. That's what they do. You can do that. And if it's a person that knows Jesus, he'll be delighted to tell you. If it's a person that doesn't know Jesus, who knows? You may be the one God chooses to lead him on in his knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you care about that? We need a spirit and attitude of that in our congregation. We really do. So there's the continuity of the church. But as Jesus speaks of building his church, constructing his church, he also speaks of the permanence of the church. You see verse 18 again. There's so much in this verse. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail against it. Now the word, the term expression, gates of hell. Gates of hell in scripture refer to death and dying. For example, in Isaiah 38.10, when Hezekiah says, I said, I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. And a possible background to this is Isaiah 28, verses 15 through 18. The last verse reads, Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. You see what Jesus is saying to us When he speaks of the permanence of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, is what the old theologians call the indefectibility of the church. Now you say that's a long word. It is, but it means something very simple. It means that the church is unfailing. It means that the church is invincible. It means that nothing can remove the church from the globe. It means that nothing can eliminate the church. It means that nothing can keep the church of Jesus Christ from reaching its consummation when Jesus comes again. 
Individual congregations may come and go. Denominations will rise and fall. But God will have His church until Jesus comes again. Caesars have tried to remove the church and they were not successful in so doing. Governments today attempt to do it. False religions attempt it. I gave to Jane Joyce something last week that I had learned about a Ugandan bishop who, after having a Christmas Eve service, was coming back to a gathering of new converts. And as he gathered with those new converts, a Muslim said, Pastor, and he turned around and the gentleman threw acid in his face and he lost the sight in one of his eyes. That is a sad and tragic thing, is it not? Sad and tragic though it may be, let me tell you, it will not stop the church. You can burn Christians at the stake, and then what happens? The old truth is just just as true now as it was then, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Killing a martyr is like putting a seed in the ground, and it just blossoms and blows around like a dandelion, spreading everywhere. The church grows through persecution grows through these hardships and these tribulations. What a wonder it is that God has promised that nothing, nothing will, nothing will remove his church from the globe. Why? My friend, because it is the church of Jesus. Because it is the church of the Son of God. Because it is the church of the one who died for his people and he will save them. It is because it is the church of the Son who rose from the dead. Because it is His church. Because He is the living Lord and the church is the living church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. But then also, as our Lord speaks of the the construction of His church, He speaks of the authority of His church. And now we have a point that needs stressing. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He speaks of keys and binding and loosing. Now, what is a key for? It permits or it excludes entrance. Many passages we could look at, Isaiah twenty two fifteen and 22, Revelation 9, 1 through 6, Revelation 20, 1 through 3. Go to your concordance and put in key or keys. Just follow them out. Keys permit or exclude entrance. Binding and loosing, a similar idea. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the church has given the message that permits or excludes. We urge conversion by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when one believes, that's the key that opens to eternal life. When one does not believe, it's the key that excludes because there is no other way but the gospel. And when we apply that word in the church, in discipline, the same is true. You see, he says this very same thing in chapter 18. Look over there. We're not there yet in our exposition, but in verse 18 of chapter 18, when Jesus is teaching the church about church discipline, 
He says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The same, the same language that he uses here in chapter 16. Now, we're not there yet, but do you see the seriousness of excommunication, my friend? That when the eldership of the church has over time attempted to win a person back and that person rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel is the key that opens or excludes. There is no other. There is no other. And as the gospel is preached and the church exercises her call to discipline, a sifting is taking place. I was going to read to you a lengthy passage, but I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to tell you about it. That my friend Mr. Spurgeon said to his congregation, there ebbs and flows in the church. And sometimes there's an ebb. The tide runs out. People walk away. People won't come. People won't hear. That happened to Jesus, didn't it? In John chapter 6. When he spoke those words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we are told that his disciples, not the twelve, but the crowds, those disciples walked away. In John's little epistle, 1 John, we are told they were not of us, or had they been of us, they would no doubt have remained with us. There are those who, when a faithful ministry is preached, when the word of God is proclaimed, it becomes so searching to their hearts over time that they can't abide it. And they want to go to a place where they can be religious. They want to go to a place where they can be with Christians and they can sing hymns, but they don't want the truth. And so they walk away. And Mr. Spurgeon, speaking to ministers whose congregations are experiencing that kind of thing, he says, you know, we grieve over everyone, and this is true, we grieve over everyone who ever walks away. But, There's another side to the story. And the other side is that through the ministry of the word, discipline is happening and a winnowing is taking place and a separation of those who believe and those who do not. Don't mistake me. I'm not saying that everyone who leaves a faithful ministry is a lost person. I am saying I think that's often the case. And we need to understand that the Lord is at work through the preaching of the word, to gather his people, but also as a fan that will scatter those who do not love the truth. The discipline of the church, the keys of the kingdom, there is only one way of entrance, and that is the gospel that is preached and believed. And there is only one thing that will exclude you, my friend, that hears this morning, and that is not receiving the good news of Jesus proclaimed. I think it is true 
As old J.C. Ryle put it, a spirit which always must have something different and something new is a diseased and unhealthy soul. We have nothing to give but the gospel. We have no one to preach but Christ. And that is sufficient. Well, let's bring this to a conclusion. The church is the context for confessing Christ. Now, the church can have in someone's viewpoint, someone's eyes, too high a position. The church, in the eyes of some people, can be higher than Christ in their estimation. And I think that historically that's been true of Roman Catholicism and Anglo-Catholicism. But let me tell you, that's not our problem. The problem of American evangelicals is that we have too low a view of the church. We have an inadequate view of the church, an inadequate view of the place of the church in our lives. That's the sickness, the disease of American evangelicals. But the scriptures teach that the church is Christ's creation and that the church takes concrete personal form with a message, a mission, and discipline. So when you read Matthew 18, don't think just in terms of this this amorphous idea of the church out there. Jesus is saying the church is manifested in concrete, definite ways. And that means that the church has rights in my life and in yours. As long as the church comes with the word of God in its hand and the gospel upon her lips... So, as this often happens, the authority of the church is just set aside when I want to do my thing and go my way. Then the elders come and they say, no, my friend, we love you. Hear what the church says because we speak the word of Christ, her head and king. Believe, repent. And when the church comes to you that way, it is because the love of Christ is there, my friend. It is the love of Jesus being shown in the discipline of the church when that happens. But when a man says, I'm going to do my own thing and I don't care, the church has no authority in my life. That's a dangerous place in which to find yourself. Believer, you are called to be faithful church members, not to treat the church as a club or to treat the church as a a franchise. You can go from one to another. You are called to support the church with your eagerness, with your love, with your substance, eagerly to pray for the church, to seek the purity of the church, to promote the peace of the church. And I want to challenge this congregation to understand that it is Christ who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her, and to ask you to be a people upon your knees praying for the church. I mentioned to you Mr. Spurgeon a lot because I've read him since a teenager and I'm just reading him more and more for my own benefit and I can't help but bring him to you. But let me tell you something. I'll tell you why this man's ministry was great. It's not because he was so incredibly gifted. He was. It's not because uh, he preached better than most other preachers. He did. It's not that. It's because when he came to New Park Street pulpit and there was just a little handful of people, they had prayer meetings And he says, it was as if the whole place was just drenched 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they prayed, and they continued to pray as the ministry prospered. Every Monday night, the church gathered. The galleries were filled with people praying. And they prayed before God. And here's Charles Spurgeon preaching Calvinism, unmixed, in a day in which it was hated. They had no musical instruments in their congregation, no entertainment, nothing. They didn't entertain a soul. Simple, 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 and God blessed it because they prayed, and God answered their prayers. In 1859, there was a revival that swept through Northern Ireland, the Great Ulster Revival. Do you know how it started? An old couple that had been praying for years, and their prayers were answered. And their prayers were answered, and ministers were converted, and began to preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit began to bless in the churches And there was a huge and massive coming of people to faith in Christ in answer to their prayers. Do you even pray for your church? Do you dare let your ministers enter into the pulpit without praying for us? Is it a flip prayer? Or do you get upon your knees and say, Oh God, our minister is going to bring your word. All this week we've been saturated with the world. We need to hear Christ. Our minister can't do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit. Not a thing. Lord, will you bless? Lord, will you bless and will you also convert lost sinners in our midst? Do you do that? Will you do that if you haven't been doing that? Will you pray for your church as God calls upon you to? The Holy Spirit is the great need of our church. It's the great need of your Christian life. The Holy Spirit is the great need of our age. Spurgeon did say this, men who have no grace in their hearts despise the church of God. Those who have only a little grace have but slight sympathy with her condition. Men who have great grace and are conscious of having received much mercy from God have great sympathy with the church of God and a deep regard for her. Is that you? Do you strive to keep the ethos of this place good? Will you get rid of your critical spirit? Will you love the saints? Will you respect her authority to minister the word? And will you earnestly cry out to God for blessing upon your church? Christ church, of which you are a part. But we're not done. Listen, we need to continue for a moment by returning where we began. Because we have some people here undoubtedly and you're not a part of the church because you don't know Christ. You have no relationship with Christ. You perhaps have walked in this morning and you're hearing us say a lot about the church and you say, that has nothing to do with me. But let me tell you, it has everything to do with you because the context of confession is the church. Let me ask you. Let me ask you the question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? How do you respond? A good teacher? The founder of a world religion? My friend, you are lost and dead in trespasses and sins. How can a good teacher, the founder of a religion, help you? You need a Savior. You need a Redeemer. And only Christ is the Savior of sinners. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Confess Christ. Now the last verse of Matthew 16 in verse 20 says, He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He is going to avoid impediments as he moves on to his main goal and mission, which is the cross. But now, let me say to you, everything is different. Jesus has gone to that cross. He has died for sinners. He has been raised by the power of God from the dead. And there is a clear, unambiguous, unqualified proclamation as we read it in Acts 4, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other Savior than Jesus. You are lost and without hope if you put your your hope or faith anywhere else. And so we call you to confess Christ just as Peter did. Who is Christ? Christ, He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of sinners. And can you say, He's my Savior from sin? John Duncan, one of the old greats of the Scottish church, said, the gospel does not say... There is a Savior if you wish to be saved. But, sir, you have no right to go to hell. You can't go there without trampling on the Son of God. Don't trample on the Son of God. Believe Him and trust Him as your Lord and as your Savior. And God's people said,